0: In the 1990s, I came across a short poem that I committed to memory, and I've thought about it a few times over the years, and in preparation for this message today, that poem came back to my mind, and it became actually the inspiration for my title, if nothing else, Let Go and Let God. That was the name of the the poem. As children bring their broken toys and tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because He is my friend. But then instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched them back and I said, Oh, God, how can you be so slow? <laughs> my child, he said, what could I do? You never did let go. Now, if I was to take my right hand right now and start cranking in the air right now, my left hand would start doing these numbers because that's the way I've been at times over the years. You know, We give things to God and then we just kind of take them back. We give things to God, we take them back. And how many of you felt that God has just been a little slow at times? Even though we see patterns in the Old Testament and the New Testament of God taking His sweet time to make things just beautiful in its time. And that's what the Bible says. Everything is beautiful in its time. One of the things that I've noticed as people come to Christ is that they bring with them all their ideologies, all their doctrinal beliefs. Because some people can grow up in church and be in church for years and then accept Christ. It happened to me. I was 34 and a half years of age and grew up in a Pentecostal church. I'll go figure that out one time when I gave my heart to the Lord. It was 20 years ago. What I've come to see is that really what we really need to do for the most part is just get the right foundation put in place. We stand sometimes on a faulty foundation. And the Bible talks about us standing on a firm foundation, not a faulty foundation. And so the message of unmerited grace undeserved grace and the message of his unconditional love which are the messages that triumphant grace ministry stands for are considered radical messages by the mainstream church they just are the fact that god could love you in the midst of your worst moment and so when we come to christ and we come to this message of grace it requires a paradigm shift in our thinking we have to think different and so that's why we stand in this church week after week and we kind of keep saying the same things but we say them a different way Grace isn't just to get you saved. Grace is <laughs> grace is a person. His name is Jesus, okay? And he is extravagant. Extravagant grace, I found, will teach a man how to walk all over again. Extravagant grace will teach you how to talk all over again. The one I didn't like when I came to this message of grace a few years ago is extravagant grace will teach you how to preach all over again. And I like kind of the way I was preaching at the time, but I found out that ain't going to work. Extravagant grace will teach you how to sing all over again. There are songs that we look through that we want to do and Sarah wants to do for worship here, and Jesus says, I can't do that one because it's a crying out song. It's crying out for something we already have, and that's not who we are. We have a finished work on the inside of us. And so it teaches us really how to think all over again. The Old Covenant, when I say the Old Covenant, I'm not talking Old Testament. The Old Covenant is in the Old Testament, But the Old Covenant and the Old Testament are two different things, okay? The Old Covenant is a fault-finding, toy-breaking, snatch-it-back, why-are-you-so-slow, performance-based religion. That's what the Old Covenant is. The New Covenant, on the other hand, is about unmerited favor. It's about bountiful blessings. It's about unconditional love. It's really about a let go and let god Christ-centered relationship and it's summed up by the finished work of the cross. Matthew's the first gospel, then Mark, Luke, and then John. Matthew was not at the cross. Mark was not at the cross. Luke was not at the cross, but John was. So John didn't get this from somebody else. He didn't just get it from the Holy Spirit. He was there in the physical and watched Jesus say those last words. These were not words he put on a little etch-a-sketch. These were indelibly imprinted on his heart three words, it is finished. That is John chapter 19 and verse 30. And then the Bible says, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, or he gave up his ghost. But if you say, Mark, what was it exactly that Jesus was talking about? Let me talk to you in techie terms, okay? What Jesus was saying is that there's been a change in the software, Under the Old Covenant, it was a certain software that people operated by. It was a do good, get good, do bad, get bad operating system. And when Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood on the cross, he just was basically saying, Father, that old operating software has become obsolete. They will never relate to you. Nobody will ever relate to you ever again based upon Old Covenant principles. There's been a new software that's been put in place. Now, as I thought about this, here's where believers get stuck at. How crazy would it be to take a compact disc and try to slide it into an 8-track player? I mean, it might fit in there. It might break going in. It might just go in whole. But how silly would it be to put a compact disc in an 8-track player and expect for it to play? That'd just be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Why? Because there are two different softwares. There are two different programs. And so when people come to Christ and they have these old ideologies with them and these old doctrines and these old belief systems, if you will, what they're trying to do is they're trying to live New Covenant lives based on old software. And you know what they find? They find themselves very, very frustrated. Jesus said it best when He says, it is finished. Two days ago, my wife and I took our daughter-in-law and two grandchildren to Olive Garden right down the street here. We came over here on Friday. Let me tell you something, okay? When you take your family out to eat, let it be about family. Let it be about friends. Let it be about fun. Let it be about fellowship. But don't let it be about the food. That's why we can go and we can sit and some people in this room can testify to this. We go out for lunch and before we're done it's time to eat supper. Am I right? So we've sat there for several hours in the restaurant just having fun and after about two and a half hours into our fellowship and after about four glasses of iced tea, I thought, well, you know, this might be a good time to use the restroom. So when I walked into the restroom, there stood a man in the middle of the room, just staring at a wall. My first thought was that there must be a full house, (laughs) but that wasn't the case. And then a couple of seconds later, I heard this tiny little voice coming from underneath one of the stalls. It was this man's little son. He sounded like he was about three or four years of age. And he said, Dad, Dad, I'm not done yet. (laughs) I thought, man, this is so cute. And then the dad's like, yeah, I know, son, I, I know. Daddy's out here, okay? And a few seconds later, dad, <laughs> dad, I'm not done yet. And the dad said, like, yes, yeah, son, take your time. Yeah, I'm, daddy's right here. And it wasn't long, 15, 20 seconds. Same thing, dad, I'm not done yet. I thought, you know, the reason I found it to be so cute is because I raised some little boys and that sounded just exactly about the way my little boys would do it. I heard the Holy Spirit say, before you even got back to my seat, he said this is where most believers are stuck at they don't understand that it's a finished work in their spirits therefore they course their way through life saying dad i'm not done yet and the truth of the matter is you are as done as you're going to ever get period you can't get any done than what you're going to get now what we're talking about is we're talking about the spirit man the bible says we are sealed until the day of redemption when jesus comes and lives in your heart you are sealed That means nothing is getting in, and if anything gets out, it's only going to be Jesus. But there's no contamination that can get on a believer's spirit. Now, we get so confused with what happens in our soulish realm that we bring this over. Remember bad doctrine, bad teachings, and stuff like that What we were talking about earlier? You know, we get that mixed up. And so what happens is people try to live a performance-based life because they don't feel like they're done yet, in order to maintain their salvation or maintain their relationship with God, nothing can contaminate our spirit. Believers need to quit saying, Dad, I'm not done yet. Here's what I felt the Lord say. When you look at yourself and you don't feel like you're done yet, you will serve God from a position of do rather than a position of done. It's that simple. See, we talk about the Old Covenant all the time. We talk about the New Covenant. And if we don't use these buzzwords, law and grace, because that's what the Old Covenant is. It's a a covenant of law. The New Covenant is a covenant of grace. Let's not use the words law and grace for a moment. Let's just use those words do and done. In the Old Covenant, it's all about do. The New Covenant is all about done. Done is just another way to say finished. You see, friends, Jesus said it first, when from the cross, He uttered the words, it is is finished. The Holy Spirit gave me an easy way to remind myself of the finished work through this word done. You see, you take the word done, D-O-N-E, and divide it in two. You have the letters D-O and the letters N-E. The do stands for do, and the N E stands for nothing else. We cannot add to his finished work in an effort to make ourselves or keep ourselves more right with God. It is a finished work. Praise God, we've got some people that will go across the globe and tell people about Jesus. They need to hear. They need to know. We can do that, of course, in the United States here as well. We don't have to go to foreign countries to be missionaries. We can do it right here in the country. But do it from a position, I guess is what I want to say, of it is a finished work. It's already been done. So, with that thought in mind, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling. As you can see, let go, let God. And it's on the subject of reconciliation. Oh, man, I love this word, reconciliation. It's a big word. Reconciliation, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, is the seedbed to understanding the revelation of the facts that you have been qualified, you have been sanctified, you have been crucified, you have been justified, and you have been glorified. This sounds like a completed work. This sounds to me as a finished work you've been qualified you've been sanctified you've been crucified you've been justified and you have been glorified and i said god can you give them all to me and and just so i'm not hopping all over the place with scripture romans chapter 8 verses 28 29 and 30 watch how you find all these positional uh, things that god has done for us and we know that in all things god works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. I want you to listen to this word. He says you've been called according to his purpose. That literally means you have been qualified. If you take a a professional baseball team and they lose the catcher, they have a backup catcher, they bring in the backup catcher. If they lose that catcher, they bring in another catcher. They've got three or four catchers. But if they get skinny on catchers, what they'll do is they'll go down to the minor league team and they'll call up a catcher. They do not just throw a dart at the wall and go, just send us anybody. What they do is they qualify that man. And God says, when he called you, he qualified you. That's exactly what God did when he called you. He qualified you according to his purpose, not yours. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. That's a big word. It literally means prearranged. We see that take place in the book of Jeremiah when God said, Before I formed you in the belly of your mama, he said, I knew you. In other words, he said, I predestined you. He said, I sanctified you. It literally means I set you apart. He said, I set you apart for the nations before you were even born, Jeremiah. So we've been qualified, we've been sanctified, we've been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen, let me say something here. You cannot be like his son without being crucified first. You've got to die in his son in order to be like his son. See, everybody just wants to live in His Son, but you've got to die in His Son first. Would you agree with that? you got to die in Jesus first, right? Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Love that scripture. That He might be the firstborn among many brethren, and those He predestined, He also called, those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. You see, in reconciliation, I want you to begin to get this picture. In reconciliation, what has happened is a holy God has released us, or another way to say it is he's let go of all of our sins. He's let go of all of our transgressions. He's let go of all of our iniquities. He's let go of all of our failures, all our missteps. He's let go of all of our shame and our pain and our guilt and our fear. He's let go of all of our condemnation. And most of all, he's let go of all the judgment. Amen. That gets me happy on the inside. It really does. He's let go of all that stuff. He's let go of all of our messes. He's taken our messes, as has been said, and turned them into messages, our tests into testimonials. What he's done is he has uh, canceled our debts, and he has reconciled every overdraft. And that's all what a sin is. It's an overdraft. He's reconciled every single sin, every single overdraft, and He's planted us into His Son, Jesus Christ, whereby we can stand and we proclaim what is said in Philippians chapter four nineteen, which says, But my God. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote that, he just had to get that in. He's talking to the Philippians, but he said, But my God. And then he said, He shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Have you got a need in your body? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You got a need in your finances, but my God. You got a need in your marriage, but my God. You got a need in your family, but my God shall supply. You got a need in your ministry, but my God. He'll supply that need for you, by the way, to serve those meals. You'll watch and see that take place. God will more than overly abundantly supply that need. Amen. He will find a way for you to preach that gospel. Amen. He's oversupplied. So, because of Philippians 4:19, but my God shall supply all my needs, we can stand with confidence and we can say, I can let go, and I can let God supply all my need according to his riches in glory. Reconciliation is a million-dollar word with a 10% understanding, unfortunately. So when we step over into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we love and we shout about this scripture. And he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you like that scripture? (laughs) I like that scripture. He made him to be sin for me who knew no sin, that I might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Love that scripture. But you know, there's three scriptures that come right before that, the verse 18, 19, and 20, that help you understand and appreciate that righteousness. Because it wasn't just flippantly passed out. Here's righteousness, here's righteousness, here's righteousness. That was something that God had to do. He had to reconcile first, right? So these were the forerunner scriptures, the three found right in front of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18-20. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to him through himself, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Is that what you folks are? You're Christ's ambassadors. Ambassadors, what they do is they represent their government. That's what an ambassador does. And ambassadors don't come with their own opinions. They come with the word of the Lord. That's what they do. If you don't like it, you take it up with him. You know, that's what ambassadors do. We are his ambassadors, it says, as though God were making this appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, when I was reading this yesterday, it says, for God was in Christ. And we say, well, wait a minute. Now, God was in Christ. Yeah, Jesus is God. God is Jesus. I kind of get all that stuff. But there came a point on the cross where God was no longer in Jesus. That is not true. You say, wait a minute, Pastor Mark, what about where it says, where Jesus cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I've heard this preached many times in many ways over the years, and they all seem like that could be true. But hear me out. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he uttered those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've heard ministers say, well, God forsook Jesus so he wouldn't have to forsake you. You know, there's a part of me that wants to grab a hold of that truth and go, yeah, I get that, Okay. I've heard him say, you know what, because of everything Jesus was experiencing, and the pressure that he was under, and all the sin of the world, past, present, and future being dumped on him, he just simply wasn't aware of God's presence. And I totally get that too. Neither one of them are what Jesus was getting at when he was doing that. What Jesus was doing, he was looking from the cross... His mother was there. Mary Magdalene was there. John the Beloved was there. Simon of Cyrene was there. I mean, you had all these people that were there. Could have been several hundred people watching the crucifixions that day. What Jesus was doing, He was pointing them all the way back to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, where David wrote Psalm 22. He opened that Psalm by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People didn't understand that Psalm until Jesus fulfilled it. So what He was doing is He was simply, when He was saying that, He was saying... He knew that they were familiar with that psalm. See, the New Testament wasn't written yet, but the Old Testament was. And so he could point them back, and as you course your way through Psalm 22, what you'll find is you'll find a picture of the crucifixion over and over, including the guys that insulted him and hurled insults at him and whatnot. You'll see the whole picture. But what's so beautiful about that is Jesus wanted to point them back and say, hey, it was me. It really was me. I'm the one that testified about it in Psalm 22. It's me. And so that when they finally got that, they would just step right over into Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How many of you have heard me made a big deal about that scripture? (laughs) That word want in the Hebrew, chaser, it means fail. Jesus was basically saying, listen, I'm taking your failure on me. So that you will never have to fail again another day in your life. You see, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to make us feel guilty, shameful, and condemned. Let me tell you the difference between those three. They sound the same, but they're different. Guilt says, you've made a mistake. Shame says, you are the mistake. (laughs) That's a big difference. And condemnation says, you must pay for your mistake. Friends, Jesus took our issues of life from us so that we don't have to walk through life saying, Dad, I'm not done yet. Yes, you are completely done. Do nothing else. Friends, the result of reconciliation is that we have been made a mirror image of Jesus. Yes, when I look in the mirror, I see Mark Testerman, but when God looks at me, he sees the darling of heaven, his son, Jesus. If God was to look in my checking account right now, do you know what he'd see? He'd see the riches of Christ. If God was to look into my body right now, you know what he would see? He'd see the riches of Christ. And if God was to look into my mind right now, do you know what he'd see? The same answer. It would be the riches of Christ just flowing abundantly. Webster's 1828 dictionary defines reconciliation this way. It says it's the act of reconciling parties at variance. In other words, they're at odds with each other. There's a tug of war going on. They've got nothing in common. And he says there's this act of reconciling parties that are at variance, renewal of friendship after disagreement or enmity. It's the agreement of things seemingly opposite different or inconsistent. And God is saying, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take two things that are absolutely not alike, (laughs) they could be farther apart, and I'm going to make them look like one. Do you think that God would allow us in heaven with all of our indifferences, all of our incompatibilities, and all of our insecurities, and all of our inconsistencies? The answer is absolutely not. So what did God do? He reconciled us to look like Christ. He reconciled us to look like his son Jesus. Now there's a word picture in my heart that I want to share with you today so that you get the full flavor of what I'm talking about. I have five digits on my hand and if I take this hand and I say this is my bank statement, when I receive my bank statement every month it's going to consist of a lot of activity on there. It's going to have my ATM withdrawals, it's going to have my deposits, it's going to have my debits. It's gonna have my transfers on there. It's gonna have my checks. It's to, all that activity is gonna be on there. And so what I do is I take that statement and I put it here on my desk and I bring my checking ledger from my checking account over next to it. And so as I start at the top of that banking account, that bank statement, it will say, you wrote a check to such and such a person on such a date for such amount. And then what I do is I look over, I know I'm not teaching anything here, but then I look over in my checking book and I say, did I do that? I did that. Check. Next one. Check. 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 Now, here's the deal. When you're all said and done, and everything's been checked, you look at the balance of the banking statement and the balance of your account. If they say the same thing, that's called reconciliation. If they say anything other than the same thing, it's not being reconciled. That is not reconciliation. So what God did is He said, Hey, I've got an idea here. He said... My son is sinless. I got an idea. I will make you sinless so that your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. You see, friends, if we live our lives based upon our performance, if we live our life based upon our actions, there's going to be days where you feel like you look and sound like God, and there's going to be days where you feel like you don't look and sound like God. And what if he comes on the day when you don't look and sound like God? (laughs) Well, friends, I want to tell you something. His words are very clear when he says, I will never forsake you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will never pour out my wrath on my son, I will never pour out my wrath on you. The heartbeat of God has always been about letting his people go. It's not just a New Testament thing. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1, and the Lord spake unto Moses, go unto Pharaoh, And say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me." In other words, he was saying, Let go and let God. Let God show you the way in. Let God show you the way out of the desert. I'm going to take you to a place that your clothes won't even wear out. I'm going to feed you with manna every day. I'm going to feed you with quail. I'm going to bring water from the rock. I'm going to provide a cloud by day to comfort you and a pillar of fire by night. How good am I, anyway? All you have to do is let go and let God. God was saying to Moses, the first thing that I'm going to do is deliver my people from bondage. I'm gonna save my people from the plagues of Egypt. Then I'm going to baptize them into the Red Sea. Then I'm going to meet all their need according to my riches and glory through Christ Jesus. That's a pretty good deal. This is what happens when a person lets go and let's God, and when it's all been said, and when it's all been done, I'm going to bring them into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a picture of heaven, a picture of joy. The journey for the believer has always been about letting go and letting God. Letting go and letting God is exactly what the Pennsylvania Amish families did in 2006 when Charles Roberts stormed into a school classroom. He shot and killed five little girls and wounded another five, and then he took his own life. In the aftermath of this tragedy, the Amish responded this way. I want you to hear how they responded. On the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls was heard warning some young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, we must not think evil of Charles Roberts. Another Amish father noted he had a mother, and a wife, and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God. Jack Meyer, a member of the Brethren community living near the Amish in Lancaster County explained, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and to reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts. A Roberts family spokesman said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted, watch this now, Robert's widow? parents, and parents-in-law. One Amish man held Roberts' sobbing father in his arms, reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. The Amish also set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter. About 30 members of the Amish community attended the gunman Charles Roberts' funeral, and Marie Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders that was actually invited to the funeral of one of the slain schoolgirls. Marie Roberts wrote an open letter to her Amish neighbors thanking them for their forgiveness, thanking them for their grace, thanking them for their mercy. She wrote, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you have given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this we sincerely... Thank you. Some commentators criticized the quick and complete forgiveness with which the Amish responded, arguing that forgiveness is inappropriate when no remorse has been expressed, and that such an attitude runs the risk of denying the existence of evil while others were supportive. Donald Graybill and two other scholars of Amish life noted that letting go of grudges is a deeply rooted value in the Amish cultures. Friend. I could search high and low, I could search the mountaintops and I could search the valleys, and outside of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, never find a better picture of reconciliation than the Amish family's choice to forgive. Now what I'm about to say is not Bible doctrine, but it is Bible principle. It is a type and shadow, if you will. In the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 20-34, through we find these words. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebecca. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, "Why is this happening to me?" So she went to inquire of the Lord. You see, the Bible says the babies jostled on the inside of her. One thing I know about twins and I've known many people that were twins throughout life, is twins are typically very compatible. Twins uh, get along. Twins uh, are agreeable with one another. Twins like to do the same things with one another. But God is about to tell her that these twins represent two nations. I want you to think about this for a moment. Two nations, or another way to say it, two kingdoms are on the inside of you. And I want you to picture this type and shadow of law and grace. Even from the womb, they are incompatible with one another. So the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two kingdoms are inside of you. Two covenants are inside of you. The law and grace, they're on the inside of you, in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people, or one covenant, will be stronger than the other. And that's what Romans chapter 8, verse 3 is all about, where the Bible says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering, and so He condemned sin in the flesh. Again, He says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The older is a picture of the law. The newer the picture of grace. The old covenant of law is not strong enough to make us stop sinning. But the new covenant of grace can, and it does. The great evangelist Harry A. Ironside was preaching at a San Francisco street corner one evening, and he was challenged by an atheist to debate on Christianity versus atheism. Before the crowd of 300 or 400 people, he accepted the challenge, and the date and place for the meeting was set for the following week. Ironside said, I have one condition, you, sir, must bring to the meeting at least two people who have been saved from lives of disgrace and degradation by their belief and by putting their trust in atheism. Ironside said that he would provide no less than 100 people who had been saved from the same state a life of disgrace and degradation by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The atheist response, I will not be at the meeting." You see, friends, the law and atheism are powerless to save and to change a man for the better. Grace alone can change a man. It's when the man lets go and lets God reconcile him, that's when change begins. Verse 24 now, When the time came for her to give birth, that is Rebecca, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand, grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. You see, friends, on the heel of one was the other. And so it was between law and grace. There was no gap between law and grace. On the heels of one was the other. On the heels of the law was grace. And so he named the other one Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, First sell me your birthright. That's a heavy price for a bowl of soup. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now let me say something here. Do you think Esau might have been kind of... Regretful that he did that somewhere along the line? I would think so. You see, the birthright and the blessing are two different things. We'll get into the blessing in just a moment. But the birthright entitled you to a double portion is what it did, of the inheritance. So if you only had two children, you got Esau and Jacob, and daddy dies, what you would do is you would take his inheritance, and let's just say it's a $100 bill, and you would add one part to it because the one guy's going to get a double portion. And so you would take 33%, 33%, 33%. You would take and give 66% to the one boy, and the other boy would get 33%. That's a double portion. So it was a big deal, especially when you got a man like Isaac who, who was really, really rich. Very, very rich. And so he's given that away. So I'm, I'm thinking he's thinking after the soup was gone, you know, it's like, oh man, what did I just do? Oh man. And I see in the story that he held Jacob in contempt for what he had did there. He's kind of a shyster about the thing, but he held him in contempt about it. And then in Genesis chapter 27, beginning at verse 1, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, Now see, we're about to get the blessing now. My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your equipment, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebecca, the mama, was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. Now who is she favoring? She's favoring Jacob, isn't she? So she's got her ear up against the door as daddy's talking to the firstborn. She ain't liking what she's hearing. So when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat, so that I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock and bring me two choice goats, so I can prepare some tasty food for your father, just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat, so that he may give you the blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man, while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get those goats for me. So he went and got them and brought them to his mother, and she prepared some tasty food just the way his father liked it. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of Esau, her older son in the house, and she put these clothes on her younger son. She covered his hands and the smooth part of his neck with this goat skin, this hairy goat skin. And then she gave, of course, the food to Jacob to take to to the father. He went to his father and said, My father? Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn, lie. This is Jacob, lie. I have done as you have told me. Lie. Please sit up and eat some of my game. Lie. That was dad's goat. So that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success. More lies. I'm telling you, when you start lying, man, it's a slippery slope, isn't it? Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near me so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father, Isaac, who touched him and said, The voice is like the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He's given him like one more opportunity to come clean. Are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am. There's your fifth lie. Then he said, My son, bring me some of your game to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. It's just kind of strange how people used to do this back then, isn't it? Jacob brought it to him, and he ate, and he brought some wine and drank. Figured, bit, you might as well get daddy drunk for he changes his mind. He brought some wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, The smell of my son Esau is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed and may those who bless you be blessed. After Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in. I mean, this is like perfect timing, right? So what he does is he too prepares some tasty food and brings it to his father. Then he said to him, my father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, he answered. It's Esau. <laughs> your firstborn. Isaac began to tremble violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. Now, if I am Esau at this point in time, I am going to try to undo everything Daddy just did. I'm going to throw the biggest fit. I mean, I'm going to be stomping and snorting going, Daddy, that, that that was that trickery boy. That was Jacob, Daddy. This is Esau, Daddy. But here's what he said. He said, I have blessed him. The lesson that we learn out of this thing here is when the Father pronounces a blessing on you, it cannot be reversed. That's an amazing revelation. He couldn't change his mind if he wanted to because he's already released the blessing. And so when God blessed us through Christ, he can't change his mind. I mean, we're talking Old Testament here. We're not even talking about even under Old Covenant yet. This is Genesis. The Old Covenant didn't come till Exodus. So what's so amazing here is you see the type and shadow of the goodness of Christ and, and God. He's just saying, listen, I put the blessing on him, son. I cannot reverse it. I can't take it away from him. What I've said sticks. The day you let go and let God come into your life, He did the same thing. He reconciled you, He reconciled me to His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He's done, He cannot reverse. That's the awesome thing. Even though Jacob was dishonest. Isaac couldn't see, right? He's blind, basically. I mean, he might have had cataracts, I don't know what it is. But he can't see, otherwise he would have been able to see. You ain't Esau, you're Jacob. So he's asking all these questions. But here's the deceiver, Jacob, in there telling him all these stories. He releases the blessing on him. Friends, let me tell you something. In all that storytelling that you've done and all that storytelling that I've done, the blessings are still on our life. I'm not advocating you tell stories, okay? Reconciliation and the righteousness that he puts on your life cannot be reversed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he said... Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright. Now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? I mean, don't you have something left over for me, Daddy? Can't you say something good over me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him Lord over you. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament like that, you never made the young son Lord over the older brother. It was always the older brother. He got the birthright he got the blessing. In this case, the younger son's got both. The younger son representing grace here, he's got both the birthright and the blessing. Haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I've made him Lord over you and have made all his relatives and his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine, so what can I possibly do for you, my son?" Esau said to his father, (laughs) I'm sure glad you asked. Oh, wait a minute, daddy. Do you just have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. Here's his blessing now. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of the heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve. I want you to remember these words. You will serve your brother. You're going to serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. And Esau held a grudge against Jacob, the Bible says, because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Now watch what he's about to say. And he says, when those days draw near, he says, I will kill my brother Jacob. These are Esau's words. He said, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. So when Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once and go to my brother Laban in a distant country. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him. Now wait a minute now. 20 years? I mean, Jacob was gone 20 years. I wouldn't have forgot about that in 20 years. No. <laughs> I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? is really ticked off, and I understand why. I totally get why he's ticked off. And if you follow Jacob's life over the next 20 years, you know the trickery stuff that he did to his daddy all fell back on him. He wanted Rachel. Laban gave him Leah. He wanted to only work seven years. He ended up working 20 years for Laban. I want to fast forward through all that because I think you've been down that road and read those stories and whatnot. So he's put in all this labor for Laban for 20 years and now it comes time to leave. Jacob is highly blessed when he leaves. He has so much livestock. He is really blessed. But as he's walking back to his father's land, the land of Canaan, with every step he takes, he's very concerned about Esau. He's very concerned. It seems like when we get off into a distant country and we get away from things, we can kind of lose track and, and just forget completely about it. But now when we start walking back that direction again, he's highly concerned. In fact, you want to see how concerned he is? Genesis chapter 33, beginning at verse 1. Before I say that, Jacob's men went to scout, and they saw Esau was coming towards him. And so what Jacob decides to do is, is to give him about 600 of his animals. Now that's a lot of wealth. About 600 animals. He said, well, take these to my brother. And here's the prayer that he begins to pray. Genesis chapter 32, verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Now, they're narrowing the gap. The brothers are walking towards each other. Well, these guys are probably on horses. And Jacob looked up, and there he saw Esau coming with his 400 men. There's 400 men that are coming towards him right now. So what did Jacob do? He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph, the darling that he loved, in the back. And then he went out to meet his brother, to approach his brother. And on his way to his brother, he fell down the ground seven times and worshipped. You want to know what weapon Esau killed Jacob with? I'm going to share it with you. Here it is in verse 4. Here's the weapon. But Esau ran to meet Jacob, and you think it was a knife? You think it was a sword? You think it was a spear? You think it was a bow and arrow? You think it was a gun? You think it was a stick of dynamite? No, it wasn't any of those things. He ran to meet his brother Jacob and embraced him. It was love. I'm telling you, it was love. He ran to meet his brother and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and began kissing him. Can you imagine how freaked out he is right about now? What? It reminds me of the prodigal son, the father who ran to his son, did the same thing. We have a type and shadow in the Old Testament for the New Testament. Love never fails, love always wins. Oh, man. I asked the Lord, what happened to this, I will kill my brother comment? Because 20 years didn't erase that. It wasn't time that healed him out of all that. What happened to this, I'm going to kill my brother? You see, what happened was when Jacob pronounced the blessing on him, he says, you will serve your brother. You're going to bless your brother. You're not going to kill your brother. You're going to serve him. And so when he released that blessing, he had no choice because when the fathers released the blessing, that's exactly the way they lived out their lives. He had no choice. I don't know when he got rid of it. He had no choice. And I felt the Lord say, here's the lesson you can learn from this. If Esau, who had good reason to kill his brother... How much more reason did God have to kill us? Yet you see Esau reconciling with Jacob the same way Jesus reconciled with us at the cross and brought us back to the Father. And you know, in the end, it literally says that Esau and Jacob both buried their father when their father died. They buried him together. I was at Promise Keepers in 1996 at Soldier Field in uh, Chicago. It was a two-day event, and it was blazing hot. I was one year old in the Lord at that time, and I was at this promise keeper's rally, and there was tens and tens of thousands of men. That year, it was called breaking down the walls. And the whole focus was reconciliation. That was the whole theme that year. And speaker after speaker got up and talked about reconciliation. And then at the end of that that final day, they had an... Well, you would call it an altar call, but they, they came to the field. By the thousands, thousands and thousands of men came down there because they've been talking about you need to get the anger out of your heart, you need to get the judgment out of your heart, you need to get the unforgiveness out of your heart, be reconciled to your brother. And so as I'm scanning this field of thousands and thousands of men, there was one person I was drawn to because he seemed to be so tall. When I looked closer, I noticed it was a white man with a black man on his shoulders. Friends, there's no better picture of reconciliation. I don't know what the conversation looked like prior to that. But here was a man that must have had something in his heart, some prejudice in his heart. And when he got down on the field, found a man of different color that he had the prejudice about. And probably got on his knees and said, would you forgive me? I want to reconcile with you. I want to reconcile with you. I, I thought when I saw that, what an awesome picture of reconciliation. It just doesn't get any sweeter than that. I mean, anytime you put somebody on your shoulder, and can you imagine having to ask the guy, now, I want to really show you that I'm really reconciled with you. Could you get on my shoulders? I mean, we're not talking about kids, we're talking about grown men. And he was just so proudly walking him around just to say, look what God's done in my heart. <laughs> look what God has done in my heart. He reconciled my heart. Oh, how beautiful it is. Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, in closing. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, it is much more certain now that we are reconciled that we shall be saved, daily delivered from sin's dominion through His resurrection life. Not only so, but we also rejoice in exultingly glory in God, in His love and perfection through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received and enjoy our reconciliation. Amen. In the 14th century, two brothers fought for the right to rule over a dukedom in what is now Belgium. The elder brother's name was Reynald, but he was commonly called Crassus, a Latin nickname meaning fat, for he was horribly obese. After a heated battle, Reynold's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him and assumed the title of Duke over his lands. But instead of killing his brother Reynald, Edward devised an unusual imprisonment. He had a room in the castle built around his brother Crassus, a room with only one door. The door was not locked, the windows were not barred, and Edward promised Reynold that he would regain his land and his title at any time that he wanted to, all he would have to do is leave the room. The obstacle to freedom was not in the doors or the windows, but with Reynold himself. You see, Reynald had this dad i not done mentality. Being grossly overweight, he could not fit through the door, even though it was near normal size. All Reynald needed to do was to diet down to a smaller size and then walk out a free man with all he had before his fall from power. However, his younger brother kept sending him an assortment of tasty foods. Reynald's desire to be free never won out over his desire to eat. Some would accuse Duke Edward of being cruel to his older brother, but he would have simply replied, My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he will. But Reynald stayed in that room for ten years until Duke Edward himself was killed in battle, and Reynald died the following year. And when I read that story, here's what I heard the Lord say. A believer's ability to walk in total freedom has everything to do with what he feeds on. Everything to do with it. And that's why we feed on messages of grace, and messages of His love, and messages of His mercy and righteousness, and reconciliation, so that we can walk in the wonderful freedom of let go and let God. And Father, we thank You for Your grace today. We thank You for Your wonderful blessings on our life. I want to thank You. As I read the scriptures, I take possession and I take ownership of the fact when the Father pronounces the blessing on our lives, it cannot be reversed. It cannot be changed. We are forever reconciled to look like Christ. So that when you look at us, Daddy, even on our worst day, all you see is someone who's been reconciled and looks exactly like the darling of heaven. So, Father, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, let us take this truth and let us run with it. Let us propagate this message that we look an awful lot like Jesus. Father, in Jesus' name, I bless your people and I bless this word. Amen.